Now this morning, I want to dive into uh, John 12. So last week we were in John 12 and uh, we looked at Jesus. He's anointed by Mary right before he enters in Jerusalem. They call the triumphal entry on a donkey. There's palm branches, all that. Uh, now that is John 12 or 10 through 29. Now, because that's called, uh, you know, basically that's the week before Easter. So we're just going to skip it and save it for two weeks and we'll hit it then. What we're going to do is skip to the next verse, uh, the next little section of scripture right after the triumphal entry. Now, the one thing to pay attention to is verse 19. So Jesus is going into Jerusalem. People are super excited. The crowds are like, yes, you know. And the Pharisees, who have basically been a part of this plot to arrest Jesus, they say this, kind of funny. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world is going after him, right? So they have this moment of, look at all these people. They're starting to follow him. And this is where our text picks up this morning, verse 20. I'm going to chunk it into two chunks. We're going to do 20 to 26 now, and then I'll get through uh, the next chunk in a bit. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, right? So you have the triumphal entry, and then you have these Greeks coming up to ask this. So they came up to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, you must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All right, so verse 20, you have some Greeks looking for Jesus. And it's this sort of funny, like, little moment where it's like, they go up and they're like, hey, can we see Jesus? And Philip's like, hmm, I'm not sure. Let me ask Andrew, you know? And then he goes and asks Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go and talk to Jesus. And they're probably thinking like, hey, Jesus, can you give us a yes or a no? Like, can they come and hang out with you for a minute? And then he starts talking about wheat, timing, and glorification. And they're probably sitting there like, hmm, I was kind of hoping for a little clearer answer. Like, I'm not sure what to do at this moment. Let's unpack this a little bit. Timing, glorification, and this idea of grains of wheat. So first, timing. Jesus says, the hour has come. Now in John, we've talked about timing a few times. So John 2, you have Mary. They're at a wedding at Cana, and she's like, Jesus, make more wine. They've run out. And he says what? My time has not arrived. My time has not come. Right? Then you get into John 7 and John 8, and you see the similar thing, like, the hour has not arrived, right? Jesus keeps saying this. And now he says in chapter 12, yep, my time is here. And his timing refers specifically to his death and his death will be on a cross, which is this super shameful and really horrible way to die where you're elevated up for all to see uh, the Romans would do this specifically actually to shame you, to highlight that you are a criminal and that you have been taken outside the city walls and put on a cross to shame you. And yet Jesus says, hey, this is for my glory. 
which is this weird combination. So how is this shameful thing connected to his glory? And then he tries to tease this out. He says, you know, let me talk a little bit about wheat and how wheat bears fruit. See, wheat doesn't bear fruit unless it dies. Beasley Murray says this well. He says this. This won't be projected, so you can just listen. Surely as a grain of wheat must be buried if it is to yield fruit for man, so the Son of Man must give himself in death if he is to produce a harvest of life for the world. Right? So the glory of God, the raising up of God, leads to the life of the world, the outbreaking of God's life in the world, but it goes via the cross. Now, there was a, a number of years when I led a, a community garden and started to or, organize this community garden. And I um, used to do these pumpkin patches on occasion. And one of the things about pumpkin patches, has anyone here ever grown pumpkins? Yeah. So one of the things that happens is like you harvest them, but then like under, it's like almost impossible. One will start rotting somewhere and guaranteed through the rotting of that pumpkin, you will have abundant pumpkins next year. Has anyone ever grown zucchini and had that happen or tomatoes, right? If you've ever gardened, you know this basic principle, right? That it is through this process of death that life is born, right? Jesus's death will be the means through which God's life breaks into the world. But then he does this interesting thing in verses 25 and 26. He doesn't just say, his death, this one historical moment where Jesus, the Son of God, is raised up on a cross. He doesn't just say this one historical moment will be the way in which God's life breaks into the world. He says this. He says that actually death to life will be the transformative principle of the kingdom. Not just at that one point 2,000 years ago, but throughout history in the kingdom, transformation and life will happen th through death, through losing life. This is how he says it. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now, I think it's possible in this moment to be like, can I skip that part? Right? Like, that doesn't sound fun. Jesus kind of sounds like a bummer and a killjoy at this moment. Like, what the, what is this stuff about hating? Well, one of the things in 21st century is we often sort of don't get rabbinic arguments. So one of the ways the rabbis would argue, they would argue in terms of like love and hate. So it's sort of arguing from the lesser or arguing from the greater. And what they're trying to do is create a contrast. So he's saying, all right, something like this. If you want to really experience the life of God, let go. Right? Don't try and build your own kingdom. Don't try and sort of satisfy your own agenda, your own plan. If you really want to experience the life of God, you have to let go. Just as Jesus lets go of control and is raised up on a cross so that life can break into the world, so we need to let go of our own planning, agenda, all that stuff in order to experience the life of God. Right? Conversely, he says, you need to hate your life. And what he says there is hate. But what he really means is, hey, if you hold on to your life, if you value your life, you think you can do it better than the Father can. If you think your plans are better than God's plans, you think your way is better than God's way, go for it. 
but you'll be disappointed. You will not experience the life that you seek. Right? Just as the tomato seed or the pumpkin seed needs to fall to the earth, it needs to be let go of in order to bear fruit, so in our lives. Right? And we see this working out in the life of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. Time and time again, when Jesus is explaining who he is and what he's about, he says, okay, this is what I do. Now, it's pretty simple. He's like, I listen to the Father. If the Father says, do this, I do it. If the Father says, say this, I say it. That's how I live my life. That's what Jesus says. Pretty much like from the beginning of John to the end. What does he do? He lets go. The Son of God. God incarnate. God walking in the neighborhood doesn't think his plan agenda is the best. He says, no, I listen to the Father. I defer to the Father. I let go of my life. I hate my life so that the life of God can be born of me, in me, right? He is the life and light of the world. Sometimes we look at this moment when Jesus goes on the cross and we're like, man, he's so faithful. You know, this one moment, it's like, well, he really sucked it up, you know? But the truth is, The cross is the culmination of the obedience that Jesus has done throughout his whole life. The cross is just another yes to the Father's invitation that started at the beginning of the Gospel of John and has gone throughout. It is the logical conclusion of the way that he has lived his life, not a moment of exceptional obedience. And yet it is clear, Jesus doesn't really want to go on the cross. You know, following the Father for Jesus isn't all like, whistling and parties. We see this as we sort of read on in 27 through 36. 27. This is what Jesus says. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me for this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it said, said that it sounded, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by the kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know what he is doing. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. All right, let's start in 27. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. I think sometimes we read the Gospels and we're like, oh man, Jesus is God. He has it easy. But that's not what this text says. It says, no, he is struggling. He is troubled. Right? I don't think Jesus wants to die on a cross any more than you or I would. It's not because he's God. He's like, you know what? This is going to be fun. He wrestles to obey the Father and even thinks his head. I wonder if I should pray, you know, Father, save me from this hour. The thought is in his head, but instead, right? Instead of focusing on his own struggle, the road that lays ahead, he focuses on the reason that the father has sent him to earth, right? To reveal the father 
to humankind, right? Through him, through the way of the cross to bring glory to God. N.T. Wright says it this way. The key to it all often in John is the glory of the Father. The way in which Jesus was totally committed to doing whatever was necessary to bring that glory about. Now, it's not like, I think sometimes we read glory in 21st century life and we're like, does the Father feel like he needs accolades? Like he needs another star or something, you know? I don't think that's the point. The point of glory is the revealing of who God is. The glorification of the Father is the making known of the Father and his heart in the world, which is a heart of love and compassion and kindness. Glorifying the Father is making the Father known for who he is. Which then brings us to verse 28. Jesus chooses God's path. He says yes to the Father's invitation. Right? He loses life. He lets go. He's the piece of grain that falls to the earth. He submits to the Father. And then what happens? Right? The Father speaks from heaven. They're like, you know, people are like, it's angels, it's thunder. Jesus is like, no, no, no. That's the Father speaking to you so you know who I am. And then he explains this really important, two verses that are really important uh, in 31 and 32. He says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I'm going to focus on 32 first. So 32 ultimately is the answer to the original question, right? So these Gentiles, these Greeks come up to Jesus and are, or come up to Philip and are like, can we talk to Jesus? And Jesus gives this kind of cryptic response. Now he is saying, yeah, I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. And guess what? This good news is going to go to all people. It's going to go to the Greeks. It's going to go to the Gentiles. And yes, the Greeks can come to me. And guess what? In a few, in a few years, this gospel will go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And you will be my witnesses. So yes, the Greeks can come to me. And guess what? They will just be the beginning. Verse 31, though, is, can be a little bit tricky. So Jesus says, right, that the ruler of the world will be cast out. So what does this mean, right? There's like this judgment and casting out. All right, so ruler of this world, uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, refers to this being called Satan. Satan is uh, Hasatan, the one who opposes. And you'll get to, uh, when we get to John 14 and 16, Jesus will refer to the prince of this age, Satan, right? So there's this idea of there's a dethroning, a kicking off of the rulership of Satan here. So what Jesus is essentially saying is through his death, he's going to, you know, he's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend to the Father. And as he ascends, right, Satan's going to be dethroned. Sort of like sort of a trading happening. Satan's knocked off as Jesus goes up. Like a trading places a little bit. You see this in Revelation 12 and 20, but I think Paul captures it really quickly in Colossians 2.15. He says this, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So it's as Jesus goes onto the cross that he actually knocks the ruler of this world, the one that leads us into sin and death, off of his throne where he has power. Now, if you're sort of a nerdy theological person, you'll know this is sort of a question or a theory of the atonement. So the atonement is, how are we at one with God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? There's all kinds of theories out there. 
the, probably the biggest and most important is called substitutionary atonement, where Jesus takes our place on the cross to reconcile us to the Father. Uh, in the early church and throughout church history, there's another one. It's called Christus Victor. And that's kind of what's being referred to here. Richard Beck explains it this way. According to Christus Victor, humanity in the entire created order is an oppressive bondage to a variety of cosmic forces, including sin and death, forces the devil uses to keep us separated from God. In response to our bondage to these powers, Jesus is born into the world to liberate us, set us free. Jesus rescues us from enslavement to hostile spiritual forces. Right? So Jesus, through the cross, undercuts the power and authority of these forces in the world that we might be able to follow God so that we're not enslaved to sin, that we're not lured by the enemy, by Satan, but we're able to follow Jesus and practice the way of Jesus in the world. Now, I realize that might be a little abstract, so I'm going to attempt a story, a story that can be a bit of an analogy. And I realize, you know, stories are always, when you're trying to deal like theology, stories are never perfect. But I think this might help us get a little bit of the feel. And if it doesn't, feel free to ignore it. All right. So when I was in high school, I uh, played football, as you can tell. And, um, and I was on JV football, and uh, we shared the locker room with the varsity team. And after practice, we would go up and we'd share the locker room. And there was this guy named Jeff. And Jeff was just this super mean bully. And he really affected the whole feel of the locker room. He, it's like, I don't know if you've ever experienced bullying, but it can like be profoundly disturbing to the way you think of yourself, the way you perceive the world. Um, it can be really terrifying. I remember one, uh, one week after practice, we went into the locker room and we're all kind of like aware as JV people going into this locker room that like Jeff could be around. And he grabs two of the smallest kids on the JV team and he grabs them by the back of their shirt and he starts shoving them into the locker. And you're just watching this terror on their face. Um, and I'm standing there watching it. And I'm terrified because I don't want to get involved because I don't want to be affected by Jeff. Right? I don't want to be a target. And there's other people that are sort of on Jeff's team and they're like cheering him on. And you can just feel this power in the room that is promoting evil. You can feel it. Now, the way I understand or think about Christus Victor is in terms of this locker room experience. I imagine Jesus as maybe like a player coach coming into the, this locker room as Jeff is trying to shove these kids into the locker. And he goes up to Jeff and he's not afraid. And he says, no, 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 put me in instead. No, no, And he just starts to go into the locker. Not because Jeff forces him in, because he does it. And you just feel the shift. The entire feel of that locker room has now changed because someone is not afraid of Jeff. Someone is not afraid of what could be done to him. He knows that if he gets shut in the locker, Right? The coach is going to come in eventually and let him out. But he undercuts Jeff's authority. 
he also provides an example that we don't have to live under the tyranny of Jeff in the locker room. Now, this is not a perfect example, but I think it captures two things. One, it captures this idea of the dethronement of Satan on earth. Right? Our earth is much like a planet full of bullies that align with evil, and Jesus comes in and he undercuts that in the world so that Satan is in charge, right? So that Jeff is not no longer controlling the locker room. He's kicked off the team. He's kicked out. Two, it provides, Jesus provides an example of how to live differently. Right? He goes into the locker room. He undercuts Jeff, but he also provides all of us, me included, a way to live differently in the world, that we don't have to live according to Jeff's rule. We don't have to live according to the darkness and evil in our world. Jesus creates another way of being, right? The way of losing life to gain it. The way of the wheat, right? That falls to the ground and bears fruit. Right? He creates a new transformation paradigm that life is born through the way of the cross. It's not through power, not through oppression, not through dominating others as Satan would. So Jesus says this word, right, in verses 31 and 32, hey, the ruler has been kicked off. You can now follow. And they're like, they come back with these abstract questions of like, hey, but isn't the son of man supposed to live forever? And they're like going this other way. And Jesus is like, all right, let's get back to the ground again. What am I talking about? He's like, hey, you don't have to live dominated by darkness. Now, you don't have to do that. You can actually live according to the light. Jesus has provided an example, a way of being with God in the world. You don't have to align your life with evil. You do not have to oppose God. You can actually align with him and walk with him and follow him. Practice the way of the cross. Follow the way he leads, right? You can become sons of light, believe in him, trust in him, right? We don't have to go back to our old ways, the ways of the world. We can align with Jesus and live differently. And because Satan is off his throne, we can do that. The door is open. Right, which brings us back to the original question that these Greek guys have. Can we be with Jesus too? Can we hang out with him? And Jesus' answer in long form is something like, yeah, I'm going to die on the cross. I am going to knock Satan off his throne so that this good news can go from here to the ends of the earth. And guess what, people? You are going to be people living in the light that model what it is like to live, in, to live the light and the gospel in the world. So you're going to go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and I'm inviting you to live in the light and not live in the darkness that by your lives, people will know that you are my disciples. Right? By our fruit-bearing lives. Right? So then what does that mean, right? For everyday life. You have Jesus sort of providing this way of being in the world through the cross, defeating the powers, right? You have all these like moving pieces and you're like, huh, what do I do with that? Uh, so I have one sentence that I'd like to sort of, that I think speaks into our moment, uh, but I want to frame it in three different parts. The first part is this, Jesus defeats the powers. 
All right, so part one, Jesus defeats the powers. I think often in church life, we think in these terms. When Jesus goes to the cross, what does he do? He makes it so that after I die, I will be able to go to heaven. Right? That's often the script we live in. Do you realize like what is missing there? Like how about our entire life on earth? Right, that by the way of the cross, Jesus isn't simply saying, hey, rock it in heaven in you know, three days or 40 years. He's saying, no, no, be transformed now. Right, he defeats the power of Satan. He undermines Satan in the world that we might be able to live in the light today, not be dominated by sin. He wants that now. Right, and then he says, hey, do you want to be sons of the light? What do you do? Believe in me, trust in me, and then walk the way of the cross. Right? Be the piece of wheat that falls to the ground and bears fruit. Be the one that lets go. Be the one who loses life that you might gain it. And some of us are thinking, you know, I just came today, like, I feel like you're talking about advanced degrees in the spiritual life, you know, like, lose my life. Like, I just want to attend Sunday morning, you know. And I just want to push back on that a little bit and say, actually, you know, my friends, this is the beginning of the spiritual life. This is not an advanced degree. Life with Jesus starts here. This is not the culmination. This is the beginning. Discipleship with Jesus is about setting aside our agendas, making him king. This is about setting aside our plans and embracing the plans of the Father. And you're thinking in your head, man, this feels like a bummer again. But this is the thing. God's hope is not for you to suffer. God's hope is that you might experience life. Right? Jesus defeats the powers that we might live new lives. It is not fun to walk in darkness. Jesus says, I've made a way for you to live in the light. It's not fun to be a dying branch on a dying plant. Don't you want to have fruit-bearing lives? Sometimes when I'm meeting with people, people are like, you know, I'm just not really growing. You know, it's just, it's not working. And then they're often, they're like, first assumption is like, yeah, I'm lazy. You know, or I'm just not disciplined. I'm thinking to myself, actually, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with laziness. It actually has nothing to do with discipline. You know what it has to do with? It's a refusal to let go of control. When I was in, uh, I used to work in these group homes in my 20s. And the, the guys in the group homes would get to choose where they went to dinner on Friday nights. And they invariably would go to hometown buffet. And... Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're a big fan of hometown, but not my favorite. Anyway, they would get in there, and as soon as they got their plate, I mean, it was just like beeline. They would just load that thing up. It was just like overflowing. You know, they're like trying to walk back to the table, and it's like dripping. Uh, And I'd be like, hey, can you put a little bit of like greens or something on your plate? Like you are going to struggle later on. You know, like just a pea, you know, they take a pea and put it on the top or something. And I share this because I think it's funny, but I also share it because I think this is the way we live. I think we approach life like these kids at Hometown Buffet. 
We go into life and we have our plate and we just try and throw everything on it. Everything. You're doing this on Tuesday and this and this and this. And you're just thinking, oh, I need to do this and this and this and this. And by the end, our plate is full and overflowing. And we're wondering, yeah, why am I not experiencing the life of God? Why am I always so tired? Why am I always struggling? Well, the truth is, it's not because you were lazy. You actually might've been trying too hard. You're trying too hard at the wrong things. Jesus' invitation to us is in life to take our plate and say, all right, God, what do I put on my plate today? What do you want on my plate this year? And let him fill our plate. Right? When Jesus did his ministry, he didn't say, you know what? I have an awesome plan. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to Galilee. And, you know, I really want to try some of that Galilean wine. I've heard it's excellent, right? I'm going to rock it for a month over there. And then, you know, Jerusalem's falafel. It's the best. I'm going to spend a little time there. No, no. He's like, all right, God. All right, Father. What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? Oh, you want me to preach over here and people think I'm amazing? Okay, I'll do it. Oh, you want me to die on a cross? Your will be done. And I just wonder for us, right? We say, Jesus has defeated the powers. He wants us to live new lives, but are we willing to let go and let him direct our lives? And I just, I guess I ask you this morning, what are you holding on to? Are there things in your life that you are unwilling to let go of that is limiting the life of God in your life? I don't say that rhetorically. I say that honestly to you right now. If you want to experience the life of God, it begins with letting go. It's not about us including God in our life. It is about God including us in his. As I was um, thinking about this message this morning, it was right at this moment, I had this picture in my head. That some people today, sitting right now, right at this moment, you are tempted. And the picture I had in my head was of people putting earplugs in their ears. That it's right at this moment, when I'm challenging this idea of control and letting go, that you kind of are tempted to stop up your ears and be like, no, this doesn't relate to me and kind of emotionally check out a little bit. And I just want to say to you, if that is you, if as I'm talking, you're sort of tempted to be like, okay, what's the next point? I think God has something important for you this morning. Pull it out. Allow God to speak to you. God actually wants really good things for you, but we have to let go. Now, if you're unsure, you don't know how to hear the voice of God, I was thinking maybe one thing that we could do this week, just even as a body on our own, is just to actually memorize verse 26. This is the verse, right? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. What if we just took some time and just memorized this verse? Not because like we're cooler if we memorize it, but because like it's a way of shaping our brains 
so that we're remembering what does it mean to practice the way of Jesus, right? That we're actually here to follow his example, not set the example. We are here to imitate the hero, not be heroes of our own stories. And that when we do that, we actually are with, we experience the presence of God. Maybe you're wondering like, where is God these days? Well, maybe he's over here and you've kind of run your own way. Which brings me to sort of the last point, right? Jesus defeats the powers that we may experience life and draw people to God. Remember the Greeks come up and they're like, hey, can we see Jesus? And he's like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna draw all people to myself. But one of the ways that we do that is we align our lives with God. We practice the way of Jesus. We do not worship. If we wanna reach, if we wanna be the faithful president of God on the Monterey Peninsula, we cannot worship at the same altars as the people of the Monterey Peninsula. Otherwise, no one will know who we worship and whose we are. We actually need to align our hearts and lives with God. And then through that, God transforms us and we become a living witness in this world. Right? This is one of the reasons that we're doing Pray for Five. You are five people in your life, right? That you aren't experiencing much of Jesus and you want Jesus to draw close to them and them to draw close to him. And I guess I invite you again, as I began this message this morning, right? With what is going on in the life of our church, like, how is God inviting you to be a part of people being drawn to the person of Jesus? Right? Take seriously, there are five people in your life, probably many more than that, that God is on the move trying to reach. Right? Verse 26, where I am, there my servant will be also. God's in the neighborhoods. God is in your family. God is in your workplaces. He is on the move and he's inviting you to be with him. Right? Enjoy the pleasure of being with him as he makes himself known to those that we love. I want to invite the worship team up. We're going to kind of lean into a few songs about who God is. Jesus has made a way for us to experience life. And then he invites us to be his witnesses in the world. 